Ladies and gentlemen, we'll begin this session, which uh, is unique in the sense that we have four individuals who work every day on issues pertaining to the Arab world, particularly the Arab-U.S. relationship, Arab views of the United States, Arab perceptions of U.S. policies, Arab polls that have been taken, particularly since 2001, when there seemed to be an embryonic consensus in the United States that all Arabs, all Muslims hated Americans. Uh, the polls have shown the exact opposite, uh, and we've learned quite a bit by looking at these polls by the Pew Charitable Trust, the Gallup Poll Organization, and many another Zogby International polls that have been respected and, and publicized. Barbara Ferguson will be the chair of this session. She is the Washington correspondent for the largest, most widely read and distributed English language newspaper in the Arab world, Arab News, uh, published by Shaukh al of Middle East Publishing uh, Corporation. She has uh, been an embedded reporter twice. Ten minutes. May I please have some silence in the back of the room? She has twice been embedded with American Armed Forces, both during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and the liberation of Kuwait, as well as with the United States Armed Forces and Iraq. She has her graduate degrees from the University of Minnesota, Colorado Women's College undergraduate, and served and lived in Paris, where she learned Arabic, attended the Sorbonne there. Barbara Ferguson. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just have to add something that I'm proud of, that as a result of coming out of the embed program, I was embedded with the U.S. Marines, and the Marines hired me as a consultant on Arab culture and Islam, which I do part-time. When I called my editor-in-chief and asked him if I could work for the Marines, he said to me, Barbara, in helping them, you're helping us. So I now work part-time with the Marines, and I know that there were several people that are still discussing Dr. Davis's comments that she made yesterday about the American military. And I want you to know that with the U.S. Marine Corps, they are making a definite effort to try to be as culturally competent in any country they go to. I want to congratulate uh, Dr. Anthony in organizing our group of journalists. Uh, as you all know, that any panel discussion after lunch is like the worst thing that can happen to you. But I can assure you that with these four journalists, Journalists, nobody's going to go to sleep this afternoon. Uh, I, I, briefly, I want to just introduce them. Nadia is someone I'm very proud to have on this panel with us. She's working with NBC, was employed with the BBC, and uh, uh, El Arabiya Television. Uh, we have then Claude Shalhami, who came in uh, at a last-minute request. Claude is working with the Washington Times and also the Middle East Times, and has just published a book called uh, While the Arab World Slept, The Impact of the Bush Years in the Middle East. Uh, then we have Ibrahim Halal, who's working with Al Jazeera English and has worked with Al Jazeera Arabic. And as many of you may know, if you do watch Al Jazeera, it is one of the finest broadcasting uh, news entities that you can listen to here in the United States. Took them a long time to play, play it here in Washington, but we're very glad to have it now. And many people, fortunately, at State Department and at the Pentagon are now listening to Al Jazeera. Last but not least, we have Hisham Melham 
Hisham, I'm glad you made it. I heard you today with Diane Reem on NPR. And uh, as always, you did a great job. So we're going to ask them to speak for 10 minutes, so we'll have plenty of time for your Q's and A's after. Thank you. And we'll begin with Nadia. Thank you, Barbara, and um, thank you, Dr. Anthony. I'm very glad to be here today. And it's wonderful to recognize so many friends and colleagues. I'm almost doing Secretary Clinton when I see everybody here. Um, I will start by um, the president's speech in Cairo. And I uh, actually was there at Cairo University. And there was so much uh, anticipation to his speech. There were a different crowd. There were the government officials. There were uh, the clergy from Azhar and from uh, uh, the Coptic Church, Baba Shnuda was there. And those of you who are familiar with the Egyptian cinema, they were also Adil Imam and Yusra, movie stars. And of course, they were the students. And uh, President Obama showed up on the stage without almost an introduction. And this, the audience went wild. It was like a rock star showing. Um, of course, when he mentioned a few words like, you know, Assalamu Alaikum or um, um, you know, hijab, although he mispronounced it and, and said hajib. You know, the audience go wild and said, we love you, Obama, and everybody said, we love you back, etc. His speech was, um, uh, I thought, was very well written. He was an amazing speaker. He's an eloquent, effective, uh, charismatic, in command of his message. And uh, just to tell you a little bit of a joke, um, you know, he spoke for 45 minutes. And in the Middle East, we don't have teleprompters. So when he was standing there speaking for 45 minutes, addressing the audience straight in the eyes, people said, wow, look at that president. He can speak without looking at one single note. Imagine. So needless to say, people were very impressed by President Obama. I think he said that he set the right tones, his language. It wasn't just the tone and the language. It's not the phrases of mutual respect. We come in here to listen. We wanted to start a new page with the Arab and Muslim world. He wasn't dictating. Uh, he talks about a mutual interest. Uh, but the fact also that his policies were changing. After all, he campaigned uh, against the war in Iraq. He talked about engaging America's enemy, i.e. Iraq and Syria. Uh, he, he set up a different tone from the previous administration. So people in the Middle East, and I think by far all the statistics that we have seen, has supported him uh, uh, versus um, uh, John McCain. So the anticipation was very high. The expectation is very high. And therefore, I think the problem here is the fall will be too high, too. I'll go back to, I think, the year of 2005 or 2004. I can't remember. But um, that was when President Bush appointed um, Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy, Karen Hughes. And he sent her on the listening tour to the Middle East. And I was traveling with her. We went to Turkey, three Muslim countries, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Egypt. And everywhere we went, people will say to her and to the journalists who were traveling with her, we love the American people. I remember when we still have this great relationship with the aids that we used to receive, uh, we want to go there. Our problem is the policies. And I think that sums up everything about this love-hate relationship with the United States. And of course, having president like President Obama, who uh, his middle name is Hussein, he looks like half of the people in the Middle East, people are identifying with him on so many notes, plus that he says every right thing. 
that you expect him to say. And he's extremely eloquent as opposed to the previous president. Um, so put all these things together, people are really expecting so much things to change. But the question always remains, uh, and I don't think that, that, uh, the, uh, that this has changed from the previous administration, is most of the people in the Middle East love the United States, but they dislike the policy intensely. And I go back to a study that a colleague of mine from the University of Jordan did, um, and they keep doing the same survey year after year after year. And they ask people, uh, which country would you like to live in, in Western democracies? Which country would you like to get treated in, medically treated? Which country would you like to study in? Which, which country would you like to migrate into? And every single time the United States comes on top, ahead of France, ahead of the United Kingdom. And that says a lot. And I think that this agreement, again, is not a matter of how we can improve the relationship. I mean, I agree, cultural ties are important, uh, student exchange are very important, and God knows how many stories I covered on, on this uh, domain. And I always find, I mean, I have even criticism towards them because I think they always pick up the, uh, the students who are very affluent, middle class, speaks very good English, and they already convinced that America is a good country. They see the good side of America, the compassionate America, the generous America. For example, I always say, um, in the case of the Palestinians, not many people know that the, uh, the largest donor of uh, AIDS to the, uh, for UNRWA, which is the United Nations Works and Relief Agencies, the biggest UN organization that works in Gaza and all of the, deals, deals with all the Palestinian refugees, uh, is the United States. But this act, simple act of generosity, can completely be wiped out by an Israeli attack of a plane that's been given to, the United, to Israel by the United States, or any weapons that's been given, because it doesn't matter what you tell the people. What they see on the ground is, is what they're going to believe. So when an Apache helicopter go and target a Hamas leader, and in the process they kill 10 or 20 Palestinians, this is what they remember. They don't remember what Americans give them as aid, but they remember, oh my God, I'm already... <laughs> I took too much. I guess I have one minute left. Um, the bottom line, what I'm saying is, we look at this president and we say, it's wonderful. He's saying all the right things. He's sitting all the right policies. But now, uh, um, almost, uh, I won't say a year, like all the comedians has been taking aim at him, but I'll say in the nine months he's been there, they're looking at his policies and they're examining it. And so far, he has not delivered. So the word now is hinging on delivery. If this president can deliver, things will change. Otherwise, I think the problem with um, this image about America in the Arab and Muslim world will always stay negative. And we look now, just to give him a quick uh, check out, basically. If you look at what he said about Iraq, the troops are still there. Afghanistan, maybe we're talking about increasing the number of troops. Israel, Palestine, we haven't seen much success and actually more of criticism that the president took the right decision of saying Israel has to, to freeze settlements. But what we have seen when, when Netanyahu stood firm on that, the, the United States retracted. And so it's been seen as a, as a paper tiger that is not standing up to the Israelis. We will see, of course, it's too, it's too early and I, and I agree it's too early to judge him. But the bottom line is he has to deliver. If he doesn't, then we have a problem. And you know, you go back to the Bush years, and we will not make comparison, but we will say that um, we still love America, and we hate you as foreign policy. Thank you.
thank you, Barbara, for uh, having me on your panel today. I didn't know uh, a day earlier that I was going to be here, but this is one of the uh, uh, fun things of journalism, that things change uh, rapidly. Um, I agree with what Nadia just said. I was in Gaza a couple of years ago giving a uh, course to um, a group of Palestinian journalists, and there was one in particular from Hamas who was vehemently anti-American. He kept from the very start uh, criticizing America, bad-mouthing every chance he got, and at the end of the course, it was a seven-day course, he came up to me and said, do you know how I can get a green card? <laughs> and I said, if, if I knew, I, I wouldn't tell you, and then I would tell the Americans not to give you one. <laughs> What's with this? He said, no, 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 I, I have nothing against the American people. It's the American government that I dislike. And this you hear over and over and over. And then at the end, he said to me, see you in paradise. And I said, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> one of us isn't going there, and I left it at that. But um, going back to Obama, um, they say that the media writes the first draft of history, and, um, which is very true. And the chapter on Obama, as is on his predecessor, George Bush, of who I'm not a supporter by any means, um, is far from written. And I think that um, today, while Obama is viewed as a breath of fresh air in, in the region because of his uh, politics, because of his policies, because of uh, the way he, he addresses people, as, as Nadia just told you, um, and especially when you compare it to, to George Bush, um, it, it's, it's a great breath of fresh air that, that people look at him and say, wow, this, is, this man is great. But what I fear is that there is way too much pressure put on him at the moment. Um, with all the best intention in the world, with all the best goodwill and all the best um, policymakers that he may have on his team, uh, it reminds me a little bit of the story uh, that was in, in the local press here the day after his election when a woman in Florida who uh, was unemployed and, and owed money on her uh, mortgage said, all my problems are solved. Uh, I don't have to worry about my mortgage anymore. Well, guess what? Uh, she's going to have a rude awakening. Life goes on regardless of who is in the White House. And the same thing applies to the Middle East. Um, o Obama can try, but if he doesn't get the support of the, 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 the participants in the Middle East peace process, he's not going to get anywhere. He, he may very well be today the, seen as the smartest president this country's ever had. He knows and he's trying very hard to uh, solve the uh, Middle East problem. But um, he, he cannot, we, we should not expect miracles from him. And he's not getting the support he, he needs and deserves from the people uh, in the Middle East with who he's working. We're, we're getting, on the one hand, um, intransigence uh, with, with, the, with the continued settlements. On the other hand, intra-Palestinian dispute between Hamas and, and Fatah. And that is not making his life any easier. So um, I think that we need to be careful. And, and, and uh, furthermore, I think the Nobel Prize that, that he, he won last week doesn't make life any easier for him. There's way too much expectation on, on, on him, way too much weight on, on his shoulders, and he's expected to deliver. Um, again, I will refer to what Nadia said just a few minutes earlier, that uh, he was 
he hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't proven himself. He's promised a lot of promises, but he hasn't delivered. And it's not for lack of goodwill on his part. It is, I think, because he's not getting the support from the region. Um, will, here's the paradox. How will history remember Obama? And how will history remember Bush? And I fear that um, it may all well be very different from what we expect. Um, as Barbara said, I just finished writing a book called While the Arab World Slept, and the subtitle is The Impact of the Bush Years on the Middle East. A couple of days after the book went to, uh, to print, I was invited at, uh, to a, rece at a reception at the uh, Kurdish uh, mission just down the street from the White House. And uh, I had sort of an awakening, and I thought, this is really something to see the way the Kurds have progressed. And the reason they have been able to, to progress that much was because of the invasion of Iraq, as much as I was against it and I wrote against it consistently, that maybe, just maybe, down the years, um, history will remember things differently. Today there are about 300 books written on the Middle East every year. In 100 years, the, the, the Iraq war might end up being just a, a, a paragraph. And in 500 years, it could just be a line. And that line may very well be very different than what we are writing today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm speaking here from my heart as a journalist, as an Arab journalist, not, not as Al Jazeera, because I don't want to, to, to put my organization in any city or in any position. So as an Arab journalist, work for Al Jazeera, works for the BBC, worked for the Egyptian TV, I can tell you that the Arab media, Al Jazeera on the top, managed to know more about Arabs and about their feelings, their ambitions, their concerns, even more than, than their governments and than the American government. And uh, it is not a joke. It happened actually recently that one of Al Jazeera managers were told, was told that uh, the CIA stopped uh, collecting information about Arabs and what they want, what they need, what they think of. Not like before, because Al Jazeera is, get, is doing this job perfectly and better. <laughs> and by listening and watching uh, to Al Jazeera and Jazeera programs and phone-ins programs, they can know better than any other intelligence sources that what are the Arab want. By that meaning, and I, I'd like to start by being a bit critical of what we have been listening to since yesterday, and I'm speaking again from my heart, and we barely listen to any critical debate. And uh, we, I believe friends, if we talk about friends, Arabs and America, we are friends. Friends are friends to disagree because Based on our friendship, we can agree on how to disagree. Only the, uh, the, the Syrian ambassador, I, 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 as I remember yesterday, was the most critical one talking about the Arab-American religion. I'm talking about the official representatives. Official representatives in, the, in this event were not critical enough. Although in the, in the reality, their countries and their governments are more critical, and we need to open our hearts and our minds and talk openly about our differences. Only the Syrian ambassador was more critical than anyone else, and I don't think America be believes Syria is not yet a friend. Maybe in the, in the near future will be a friend. So friends should be open and criticize. 
As a journalist, I'd like to report on what have been said and the official statements uh, of the American foreign policy. And I agree with Nadia that millions of Arabs would love to stay and study and, and get treated in America only because they are here far from the American foreign policy. They are safe because they are out of the domain of the American foreign policy. <laughs> the American foreign policy statements, and uh, this is not accurate quotes, but correct me if I'm wrong. The aim of the engagement with Syria is to make Damascus an essential player in the region's stability. This is one of the statements we hear here and we are still hearing everywhere. But what does it mean, the region's stability? Of course, from the Syrians and from the Hamas and from Hezbollah's point and from Iran's point of view, they are an essential player in the region's stability. They are doing it already by supporting the militant groups to, to, to enable them to stand in front of Israel. Um, in, in the definition of region's stability in, in the eyes of Arabs are, is completely different from the definition we assume here when we talk to each other without being critical, that we agree there is a cons consensus on what does it mean, the region's stability. The region's stability, we should discuss, we should debate what is the stability before we debate how to achieve it. Another statement that uh, we will continue training the Iraqi security forces. I think this is one of the main uh, uh, policies the, the American foreign policy in Iraq. We will contain training Iraqi foreign forces. I believe Iraqis, especially, especially Iraqis, don't need training in how to do their military job. Iraqis are the best when it comes to use weapons. They, how can you think Americans can train Iraqis to love each other again, to, 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 re, to, to live together, to coexist, to think of the other side as they should do? I don't think this kind of statement, we should continue training the Iraqi security forces. Can, can, can American forces train Iraqis how to respect each other again? The again, another one, the final status negotiations must be resumed, the final between Palestinians and Israelis. As an Arab, again, I'm trying to, to reflect Arabs, how do they think? How can you think by saying the final status negotiations must be resumed. How can you think that you can debate the future of the kids, how you, the university where they are going to before they are even born? They are not yet born to discuss what kind of study they will study in the university. So before sending these messages to Arabs, foreign policy, American foreign policy should think how it has been received. It will be received completely negative by the other side. Even with Obama's administration, even with the optimism came with Obama, these same very static messages are not yet received as you think they are received. We don't deal with Hamas, and we don't have plans to deal with Hamas. But you are dealing with Iran, and you are dealing with Syria. And this is what Arabs are saying. You are dealing with Iran, and you are dealing with Syria, who are the supporters of Hamas and Hezbollah. How can you will justify not dealing with Hamas. The Americans cannot fix the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It has to be fixed by the Israelis and Palestinians themselves. This is very right, and you, but very utopical, because to do so, you shouldn't have voted against Goldstone last night. Because when you voted against Goldstone last night, this, is, this statement is received completely negatively. We don't have problems with some countries 
having influence, but we have problems when they negatively use this influence. So I think this statement means Iran, and negatively here needs another qualification. So to cut short the long list of statements, I, I, I got out of this event, and of course I, I, I made sure that they are the statements used in the American foreign policy and security policy in the Middle East, this is how I believe Arabs would receive these kind of statements. I believe there is always a reason for the wrongdoing. Uh, American foreign policy assumes that there are some wrongdoings, some bad behavior. There are always reasons for this bad behavior. And I believe because of the continuous talk about the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear uh, ambitions, because of the continuous talks about Hezbollah's uh, ability to reach Israel. I think this is uh, the reason by itself for Iran and Hezbollah to carry on doing the same wrongdoing between Kurdish. I will end with uh, a statement also mentioned by the Bahraini representative. I agree with her completely that the challenges could bring us together but I believe the challenges will, that will bring us together tomorrow could divide us tomorrow more than they divide us today if we don't think properly about them, if we don't deal with them honestly and courage. Because this is very, as well, this is very wishful thinking that, of, of course, we are, see, we, are, we are confronting more difficult challenges, but they will be more divisive than today if we don't be able to face them honestly and open mind. Thank you very much. I definitely don't claim to be speaking for the Arabs. There are God knows how many Arab states. It's very difficult to speak about, an, a, a, about any Arab position. Uh, Arabs are divided by their rulers and their ruled. Um, certain Arab states went to war against each other. All this talk about Arab unity, it's uh, in the realm of dreams. So I'll give you my own assessment of how some Arabs probably, or how initially I read the Arab reactions to Obama, uh, Obama's administration and to Obama's views. Obviously, Barack Obama represents a new American leadership style. Obviously, he brought with him a new political discourse, the unbush, if you will. Um, obviously, Barack Obama has a very sophisticated understanding of America's predicament um, uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. America is no longer the omniscient, uh, omnipresent country that it used to be for most of the duration of the Cold War. We have serious economic, structural, economic, financial problems. Um, this is a world that is no longer divided between East and West. There are ascending powers that the United States has to rec recognize and reckon with, China, India, and so-called BRICS. So this is a new uh, terrain, political strategic terrain, and Obama has the intellect to understand the dynamics and the complexity of a new world, something that George Bush lacked and lacked in a scandalous fashion. But Obama is not only talk, as some people argue, in their reaction to, his, uh, to, to the Nobel Peace Prize, and as you hear a lot uh, among Arab commentators, 
On his first week in government, he, uh, at the White House, he appointed George Mitchell as an envoy to the Middle East to indicate that he is serious about this issue. He announced that he would like to close down Guantanamo in one year, and obviously January is, coming, is close now, and he may not be able to do that. He uh, announced uh, a program for the withdrawal of American forces from Iraq. And he did embark on a, a, a policy of engaging the former axis of evil states, plus a potential axis of evil state. I'm talking about Iran and then Syria. Uh, obviously, it's very easy on the ninth month to say, well, what did he achieve? Uh, let me say, by, I mean, Obviously, Barack Obama is not a miracle worker. And he is running against some entrenched powers in the Middle East. And he's running against a political establishment in Washington that, that uh, rarely allows a president to be truly historic and truly bold. And if you read the right-wing criticism, Barack Obama's healthcare plan or his you know, domestic plans, you hear and see echoes of what the right wing did to a great American president named FDR more than 70 years ago. Um, so obviously, uh, he's facing a tremendous uh, challenges. The inheritance that he got from George Bush is tremendous. Two bloody wars and a huge historic economic crisis and a divided Washington and a divided American polity. So uh, uh, people should keep that in mind. Context is extremely important. Keeping a sense of history is extremely important. Now, I would argue that Obama's test in the Middle East is not going to be Afghanistan. Most Arabs don't give a damn about Afghanistan. It's not going to be even Iran, although Iran, as an ascendant, assertive, belligerent power, is making many Arabs, including this one, extremely nervous. In many states, many Arab states, who live in the shadow of this ascendant, belligerent, regional power, don't want that, uh, that power to run amok. What Obama is trying to do, I think, is to change American foreign policy in a way that would add that moral element to American foreign policy, the kind of moral element that people like me, as a former leftist, is to criticize the United States foreign policy by saying, whatever happened to those great American values when we, do our, when we conduct our foreign policy overseas because they stop at the water's edge? Obama is trying to make America an indispensable country for the good. Now let me give you my shtick on this thing. I, have, uh, I mean, I don't pull punches on US foreign policy in the Middle East. We have, we have done a disastrous job on the Arab-Israeli conflict, and we have done a disastrous job because we didn't care throughout history, throughout, I mean, the, throughout the modern history of the Arab world, since the Second World War, to be precise, about human rights issues in the Arab world. I have two minutes now. Now, now I'm beginning to roll, and I have two minutes. <laughs> we have done a lousy job on the issue of human rights in the Arab world. I've never agreed with George Bush on anything except one, his second inaugural speech when he said correctly, that we, American uh, administrations, both Republicans and, 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 and Democrats, uh, 
Look the other way, for 60 years, when our friends, the Arab rulers and the Muslim rulers, were violating the basic rights of their, their own people for decades. And we did that in the names of securing the free flow of oil from the Middle East, in the name of stability, and in the name of combating the Soviet Union during the Cold War. That was the only thing that George Bush said and made sense. Now I want to tell you, Arabs are saying, what did Obama do to me? And this is a typical Arab-Muslim reaction. And this is true of the rulers, and this is true of a great deal of the so-called intelligentsia that follow the rulers. They have complaints. They don't have solutions. They want the Americans to settle the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, obviously, foreign US, US policy towards Israel did manage to make a, conf a bad conflict much worse. And there is an American moral responsibility. But there is also an Arab responsibility, just as there is a tremendous Israeli responsibility, not only for Gaza and what they did to Lebanon and Gaza in the last few years, but throughout the conflict. But, the, the, but there is also an entrenched view in the Arab and the Muslim world. And you see it even among Palestinian intelligentsia. We have been wronged, which is true. We got a bomb rap, which is true. Come and settle it for us, as if we have no responsibility. As if we have no responsibility. Who is responsible for the mess in Sudan? Zionism? American imperialism? Who is responsible for the mess in Algeria? Who is responsible for the mess throughout the Arab world and the Muslim world? Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan. Of course, the United States and others, including Arabs and Muslims, are mainly responsible for the mess in Afghanistan, by the way. But I mean, this lack of accountability about Arab responsibility and Muslim responsibility is lacking in the political discourse. Obama come and solve my problem as a Palestinian. Obama come and solve my problem as a Lebanese. Obama come and solve my problem. I'm scared to, to death from Iran. And that's really a big problem. And let me end by saying something. I hope Obama succeeds in making America an indispensable political and moral power in the world. I read Arab reporters writing a lousy lead that would say, since the United States is a negative power in the world, it's a given. It's a given. Now, if this world is going to be dominated by one political culture, I ask my Arab friends and my European friends, because I always argue with them about this issue. Would you like this world to be dominated by the political culture of China, India, Russia, Iran, or an old, fat, lazy European continent, or the United States with all its wars? Who is going to stop North Korea, which is the political equivalent of a runaway freight train? The Americans. Arabs and Muslims always uh, complain. Americans don't raise hell when Arabs are dying or Muslims are dying. Well, if the Americans did not intervene, Kuwait today will be the 19th province of the great state of Prussia and the Arab world, Iraq, Saddam Hussein. It was the Americans, not the Europeans, not the Europeans, who stopped the first mass killing 
that occurred on European soil since the Holocaust in the mid-1990s in Kosovo and, 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 and Bosnia. Not the Europeans who sat wringing their head, what, what can we do? The French give us lectures, the Russians tell us what to do, and they have nothing, they have done nothing to stop it until the gringos intervene. Seriously, I mean, these are the questions that people in the Arab world should ask. I'm not defending U.S. blunders in Iraq. The invasion was a horrendous blunder of Iraq, that is. I had different views on, on, on Afghanistan. Iraq was a war, a disastrous war, should not have happened. And we are all paying for it. But even after the invasion, after the blunder, after the American mistakes there, what did the Arab world do? Some Arab states wanted to see the American bleed there and they couldn't give a damn if the Iraqis were bleeding and dying with them. I mean, these are the things that you don't hear in the Arab world. Thank you. I want to remind you that if you have any questions, please write them down and bring them forward so that we can ask the panel. And I'd just like to ask the first question. Nadia, I know that you cover the White House. Have you noticed a significant difference between the Bush administration and the Obama administration in the way that they're treating foreign correspondents, especially those from the Middle East? <laughs> I don't know if I want to go that, that road, but um, yes, there is a difference. I think um, when President Obama was elected, we expected more access. We expected the White House to give us a better treatment that we had during President Bush. But unfortunately, it's not the case at all. And the foreign correspondents have been covering the White House, whether they're Arabs or Europeans or Asians, uh, constantly we've been raising this issue with the press secretary. Um, I've been going to the briefings ever since the administration was elected. I still don't have one single question. And I complain that we've been treated as a fifth-class citizen in the briefing room. And, um, uh, you know, we cannot live just on one-off uh, interview that the president gave. You have to give access uh, to the Arab media. Second, we wanted um, uh, to be able, when I travel with the president, to be able to have more access to him, and we don't. Uh, we want to have uh, off-the-record briefing when it comes to the Middle East or it comes foreign policy issues, etc. So the only time I managed to get questions in the Oval Office was when uh, a foreign leader comes, like President Abbas or King Abdullah of Jordan, and they're the one who give me the question, not, not the White House. So, but I think when I covered President Bush, I came into his second term. It was in 2003. And he already had one term, and I cannot really compare what is it like in the first year of the Bush administration. I'm sure it was chaotic. So I think we'll give them time, but again, because the expectation was very, very high that they will give us access, that they campaign on a, a, a platform of transparency, then we hope that um, he will give us um, a better, um, they will have a better understanding of the foreign media, especially that the president went twice and he addressed a Muslim and Arab world from Turkey and from Cairo. And I think I have some colleagues here in the audience that have uh, been with us on this uh, struggle trying to get a better access at the White House. Thank you. We have uh, uh, someone in the audience who obviously wants to stir things up. Uh, they've asked, what is Mr. Halal's response to Mr. Mellow's com comments? <laughs> I told you, you have to expect this with journalists. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, I was asked by my organization to 
contradict with Al Arabiya, whatever they say. <laughs> Otherwise, I will lose my job. <laughs> but, but I don't want you to lose your job. But Mr. Hisham made it easier for me because I really disagree with him. <laughs> and I don't think he should sit in my left, he should <laughs> the other side of the table. I I have been to Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen and Sudan and all these nice places Mr. Hisham mentioned in, in his uh, speech. And I was told by many normal, average people, especially Afghanistan very recently, that one of the main reasons for their hatred is the indiscriminate killing, for example. In this, the, the policy of indiscriminate killing, random attacks. And this morning there was an attack in Pakistan, by the way. These killings and media is doing its job by conveying the message, pictures of these indiscriminate killing and poor people killed by attacks in Afghanistan and Pakistan. This is the main reason of hatred in these countries. And this is the fuel Islamists are using in Yemen, in Algeria, in Egypt, in, in Lebanon, in Sudan to fuel the hatred against America for their own reasons. Maybe, maybe for them. In Yemen, for example, I, I, I was working in Jazeera at that time in, I don't remember which people, uh, which organization, but I remember we were, we were covering the Intifada, the uh, second Intifada in the year 2000, when the, uh, the uh, attack on coal happened in Yemen. And for, for the Islamists who did this attack, they already had the justification. The second Intifada started, the killings against Palestinians by American weapons, this is, this is a back mind of every single Arab and Muslim. They cannot get out of it. The, we have kids still in the primary school. They know everything about it. They know that American weapons, American support, American veto, everything is done by Israel against Arabs has to do a little bit or a big bit with America. So I, I can't say that we are responsible for what happened and what is happening in, in, in Sudan. Yes, we are responsible for what is going on in Sudan and Yemen, but they have many things have to do with the American foreign policy. And yes, the Arabs want America to help everything, helping them reaching their, uh, their, 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 their families, everything. We want America to help us in everything, but America also wants to do it. And the Americans wants no one else to do it, because when Europeans, when Russians, when Chinese, when everyone starts to help, in, in, in many conflicts, they stop them short by doing it. So yes, we want America to help us unfairly because we need to help ourselves, but of course the foreign policy of the American administration wants to do more than they are doing. Thank you, thank you. All right, uh, here's a question for all of you to think about. Uh, how does the United States overcome the attitude that the U.S. is both responsible for causing conflicts in the region and responsible for solving conflicts. Should the U.S. simply step away, intervene despite local opposition, supply funds but not troops, back specific local groups? And if you all want, you can answer each one of those questions. But uh, one minute apiece. Well, <laughs> I want to get more questions in. Well, it depends case by case. There is sometimes, I mean, whether we like it or not, America is the superpower. And if you look at, I will give you the example of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, if you ask the Palestinians, and they will say, yes, the United States has been biased towards uh, the Palestinian cause, but we want them to be there because we believe they're the only one who are able to exercise and exert pressure on Israel. 
So in this case, they want them to interfere. Um, in other cases, in other countries, it's not helpful. Um, and I always say it's, uh, for example, uh, something I didn't mention. Um, I think, generally speaking, if you talk to anybody in the Middle East, uh, they will say that our problem with American foreign policy always two issues. And it's not just in the Middle East, in the Muslim world as well. Unconditional support for Israel, no matter what, even when it breaks international law, when it acts against the Geneva Convention, and America's, and, and it's not this administration, but, you know, um, uh, so many administrations, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, uh, support for undemocratic rulers in the Middle East. If these two points are not going to change, not much we can change. So we can take initiatives ourselves as citizens of the Middle East, but if you don't have the government, unless you have a revolution, I don't know how on earth you're going to change things on the ground. It's going to be really tough. So the bottom line is I will think that America, uh, yes, in case of Iraq, it was uh, a decision that was taken by the previous administration to overthrow Saddam Hussein. The consequences, as uh, Claude said, will be judged years from now. President Bush said history will be written years from now. Uh, you can agree and disagree, but the bottom line is it was uh, seen by the majority of the Muslim world as illegal war. Uh, so in, in this perspective, it was a preemptive war, um, and many people would disagree. But in other places, like for example, the American uh, intervention in Bosnia, when they saved uh, Muslims there, it was welcomed. American intervention in Somalia during uh, Operation Restore Hope during the Clinton administration was a disaster. So it depends on, on I think it, you have to take it case by case. But I will say that America is not innocent. I think there is interest, and this is a fair uh, assessment that every country has to look after its own national interest. So if America's national interests will uh, collide with those of the Arabs, they will go ahead and do it. If it, 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 uh, it, it worked in cooperation, they also will, will work with it. So at the moment, and I think this administration talked about, we have to solve the Israeli-Palestinian question because it's of America's national interest. Well, it's good enough for me. If they're going to help me to get a Palestinian state, I'll say, yes, go ahead for it. But I'm saying in general that the image of America in the Arab world that is a country that stands for democracy and human rights and, uh, you know, rule of law, etc., is it, uh, contradiction uh, of the picture that we have seen from other parts of the world, and people see this, and they're not really naive not to believe it. I mean, look at Latin America, which is backdoor. I mean, when America supported all the dictators, the worst dictatorship in the world was supported by the American administration. So don't come and lecture me and tell me I stand for freedom and human rights when your act on the ground contradict what you're saying. But I still expect America to, to have the moral uh, high ground. And I always say with people who have the argument, just very quickly, um, look what Al-Qaeda is doing. Look at, uh, I don't know, the extremist group is doing. Look, the, the terrorists, they're killing people, they're cutting heads on TV screens. And I said, well, yes, but they're not Democrats. They're not a state. They're accountable to no one. They're not signatory of any international law. And they act like an outlawed or a terrorist organization. So why on earth would you compare yourself to them? We expect much better from you. So when you have people in Guantanamo and they are guilty, you put them on trial because we believe in you. But you do not lock them indefinitely and tell me that I'm the democracy and I'm better than this or that regime that's been governing you for the last 30 years or 40 years. I think one of the problems of American foreign policy is that it suffers from attention deficit disorder. Um, it, it, 
you look at the uh, U.S. intervention in Lebanon, 1982, they left prematurely. You look at the U.S. intervention in Somalia, they left prematurely. Afghanistan, they left prematurely. And those are all points where trouble has been brewing. Now, there are some people who uh, trace this war on terror, Bush used to call it. I think a war on terror is, is a misnomer because you can't fight an emotion. I call it the war on terrorism, but that's because I'm a journalist. Um, I think that this war on terror, some people say, began in 1982-83, rather, when uh, the U.S. Marines were attacked in Lebanon and uh, 241 U.S. Marine service, U.S. servicemen, mostly Marines, died in, in the October 23rd uh, attack. Um, actually, the war on terrorism goes even further back. Um, I have a cover of Time magazine that's got splashed across the, the front page, the cover, War on Terrorism and the date is 1979. So, but I think you have to go even further back to trace the roots of this war on terrorism. I think you go back to 1967, the Arab-Israeli war, when the Arabs suffered the most humiliating defeat, and that's where it all started to brew, and everything boils down to solving the Arab-Israeli conflict. As long as that conflict is not solved, it will remain a, 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 a boiling pot of uh, uncertainty and a boiling pot of, uh, it will foment, uh, uh, you could call it uh, terrorism. Um, it's, it's not that once the, the, the Palestinian-Israeli issue is solved, everything is solved. There will be other problems. But that is one of the, the main motors that drives this, this engine that, that uh, is uh, unsettling in the world. Um, as for uh, U.S. Uh, being anti-Muslim, I disagree. I think, as Nadia said, she mentioned, Bo she mentioned Bosnia. Kosovo is, is a Muslim country. And the, the Americans are hailed as heroes there. The, the main avenue is called uh, Bill Clinton Avenue, and there's a huge mural of Bill Clinton on the tallest building in, in Pristina. So um, the, the, the main problem, though, is going back to what I said at the beginning of, of this uh, statement, that uh, the US needs to focus and retain attention on its foreign policy and not just be diverted and, and lose track of what it, it, it should be doing. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I've got one question for Ibrahim and, and then Hashan. Um, Ibrahim, how can President Obama make use of the global popularity he currently has, uh, especially in advancing the cause of the peace process between Palestinian Israelis and across the broader region? Uh, I believe Mr. Obama did the right thing when he ordered to pay the outstanding, outstanding balance to the United Nations which was due to America to pay for many years. And I believe the right thing should be done as well to the international community. The political outstanding balance should be given back to the international community and the international foreign policy. Uh, when it comes to the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, yesterday, last night, was the last example that America voted against Goldstone, which was primarily, mainly, a very honest and balanced report. I believe that Obama's administration should stick to its principles when it comes to international, le international law and legal system. And by that, gradually, the, the, the image of America will be much better and will be, will be perceived easier. And that will be more convincing for Obama's administration to work closely with Arabs. Hisham, I think uh, somebody's baiting you here. The question is, if most Arabs don't give a damn about Afghanistan, then how can you explain the Arab-Afghan presence there? 
how many there are of those Arab Afghans? A few hundreds? A few disgruntled souls? A few thousands? They don't mean a thing. I mean, the scheme of things. In my history as an Arab, Afghanistan was a backwater. When you talk about Muslim countries, we talk about Turkey, we talk about Iran, we talk about Egypt, where the seat of power was, whether it's the Ottoman Empire or the Umayyad Empire or the Abbasid Empire in the case of Baghdad. That's what I meant. I mean, don't, no, no, no disrespect for Afghanistan. I don't believe, by the way, I mean, yeah, anyway, I'm going to be enraging more people. I always believe in what, uh, I mean, just to paraphrase George Orwell, all states were created equal. Some, or some states are more equal than others. Whether you like it or not, that's a reality. Let me say something about the United States and the Middle East. If, if you're talking about the resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict, like it or not, and as a critic of past US foreign policy on, on that issue, on other issues in the Arab and the Muslim world and the third world, I don't like to talk about the Muslim world, um, the United States is indispensable for the resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict. There's no way it can be resolved without American input. America is the judge, it's a culprit, and it's the, and it's, and it's the referee. That's the, that's, that's, the, that's the irony of it. When people talk about the international community, it doesn't really mean much. When people talk about the United Nations, it doesn't mean much unless we talk about the few powerful states that can make decisions and, and, and carry out and execute those decisions. Costa Rica doesn't mean a thing in the international relationship system. With all due respect to Costa Rica, or to Bahrain, or to my own country of birth, Lebanon. What can the European Union do, or does, or whatever, to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict, if the Americans are not involved? You want to leave it to Russia's Putin? Or China? Or India, for that matter? I mean, seriously, well, you know, I mean... Well, let the Europeans do this and that. Let you Nor Norwegians spend some money on NGOs in Palestine. That's great. We love it. And, and I appreciate it. And no, I mean, I, I think Norway is a great country. But I mean, if you want to really talk about real politics, real, I mean, real decisions, we have to talk about the United States. We have to talk about a concept of states that can, can make decisions and carry them out and execute them. All this talk about the UN Assembly and this resolution and that resolution, I mean, you know, what do they mean? You can have million resolutions about Georgia. That will not stop the Russian army from acting as, you know, as they act wantonly and as they've done in their murderous uh, 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 rampages in places like Chechnya and, 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 and Georgia. I mean, really, I mean, let, let's be real. Let's be real. I don't want Solana to negotiate on my behalf, with all due respect. I want the United States to negotiate with Iran. I don't want the Europeans to negotiate with Iran. I don't trust them. Let's be real. What can Russia do in the Middle East on its own? Their role is negative. Iran, Iran's role is extremely negative. Hamas and Hezbollah, do they represent a grassroots support? Of course they do. Are they democratic? Hell no. Would the United States deal with them? Why should the United States deal with a non-state actor? It's a sovereign decision. Thanks, Hisham. I just... Uh... 
since it took us so long to allow Al Jazeera into Washington, how about if we let Al Jazeera have the final word? <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I would like to quickly comment again on Hisham about <laughs> quicker than him. I'm going to keep you in business. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, I've been to many mosques in Egypt, outside Egypt. While I was a young man, I used to go more than now to mosques in Egypt, and I used to listen to the prayers for our brothers in Afghanistan. Oh, God, help our brothers. It's like one of the poorest prayer I've ever been. Since nine, since 78, till now, I think with a very short con uh, intervene when it was confusing. There was a confusion for the uh, imams in mosques how to pray, because our brothers were fighting each other. But luckily, Americans intervened again and made it easier for the imams to pray against America. So the prayers in every Arab and Muslim mosque since 1979 till today is, oh, God, help our brothers in Afghanistan. I don't think Afghanistan is, an, is not an issue. It is a big issue. Whether we like it or not, it is a big issue. And uh, of course, Europeans and, and, and Europeans, if, if I think even what, what you said contradicts with Mr. Obama's new vision, that we should deal with Europeans and, 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 and Arab and, and Chinese and United Nations openly than before. And I, I strongly believe that Arabs would be more open to deal with America if America gives more attention to others in the main center uh, conflict, which is the Arab-Israeli conflict. Thank you very much. Just one point very quickly, I just want to say, Hisham, that uh, just to be fair to the Norwegians, don't forget that they sponsored the Oslo talk. So without them, Arafat will never been in, <laughs> in, in, in Gaza anyway.